James Wong, it is brilliant to have you with me for 20 Questions With. I'm very excited about this because I, I'm a lover of the natural world. I love to get out and about in nature. I'm a huge bird watcher, not, not an expert, I'd say, but an enthusiast and a bird photographer, a nature photographer. So I am, as I say, really excited to chat to you. I want to start with my first question. I just ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words. Oh, no, that's such a job interview question. <laughs> I was always terrible at those. Um, so where should I start? Well, I'll start with my job. So um, I'm an ethnobotanist, which is a specific subset of botany. There are lots of specializations. Um, and what we look at is the human use of plants, whether that's food or medicine or textiles or, or, or biofuels, whatever that might be. Um, that's what we study. Uh, I trained at Kew Gardens here in London, but I grew up in Singapore. So, and I've lived to a bunch of different countries since then, places like Ecuador. So lived all over the world, talking to people about plants. I think that's about, that's, that's about me. Is there not an element to ethnobotany of understanding where plants come from? So the, in, a, in, in a sense, the ethnicity of plants, or am I just misunderstanding the word? Um, oh, so it's a, it's a confusing title, really, isn't it? Um, so it was originally coined in the late 19th century, so we're stuck with it. Um, originally, it was studying the botany of other cultures, so non-Western cultures. But what that turns out to be is that, you know, people in everywhere else at the time, other than the West, weren't studying plants for the sake of it. They were studying plants for practical applications. Uh, they weren't trying to figure out whether they belonged in one group taxonomically and they were related to something else they weren't necessarily making press specimens of them they were using misfunctional objects so what it really turned into is the the study of plant use so a synonym for it is economic botany so in part of that there definitely does come part of its origin so for example uh, we now know that agriculture was independently invented at least eight times across the planet uh, roughly at the same time amazingly and all of the plants that we eat essentially come from those eight spots on the planet where agriculture was originally developed. So you, you have this hot spot where things like tomatoes, chilies, peppers, pumpkins, maize comes from. Uh, you have a, that's uh, in Latin America. You also have a hot spot where things like uh, rice and soy are domesticated. Everything on the planet comes from these eight tiny geographical regions. Before we talk more about plants, where did the presenter in James Wong come from? Was that something growing up that you thought you would do? Did you come to it naturally? Some, some people, I guess, can probably almost force themselves to be good in front of camera. Some people are just naturals. How did it work for you? What was your sort of journey into becoming a presenter? It's a, it's a really good question, and it's a difficult one to answer, because I guess if we were to draw a Venn diagram, the overlapping points between people who want to stand up on a soapbox and say look at me and people who are interested in plants there's really little crossover um, most botanists are real introverts and I guess the stereotype of people who present is that they're extremely extrovert I am um, very much I, I would say that I can turn on for the camera for a few minutes uh, but you know I, I can't ever watch myself I hate the process of being filmed if I'm ever recognized in a supermarket queue, it's the end of my day. Uh, like, I, I literally ruins my day. Because I just feel such pressure of having to say something. I just have no idea of what is socially appropriate or what kind of fun, friendly small talk is. And I really admire people who are able to do that. So I think it's unusual that I ended up in this job. 
Um, I've just turned my camera off on the Zoom call and I'm delighted about it. But I think it's really important. I mean, the last botany degree in the UK closed in 2013, roughly. Animal science uh, scientists now outnumber plant scientists by 500 to one. And understanding plants is crucial to the survival of the human species. We need to have more botanists out there, more plant scientists, and we need to have people who are able to communicate that. And I'm, I hope to think I might be able to help in a little way uh, about telling people about why plant science is so important. Where did you get your passion for plants? You grew up in Singapore. I think you have a Welsh mother. And do you have a father from Borneo? Yes, I do. Good, good research did... and development. <laughs> where, did it, where did it come from, the, the love of plants, the fascination in plants? Do you know, I, I never know what to answer to this question. Because at first, like maybe when I was in my 20s, I used to feel pressure to come up with an origin story. Like a, like a superhero origin story. And I, I think back and I went, okay, well, I grew up in the tropics and you can only be interested in things you have contact with. And in the UK, you know, six months of the year, plants are not actively growing in general. And it may, may not be too cold out to actually go out and do that. Whereas in the tropics, you can see lighter life and active growth at full pelt every single day of the year. So there's physically more opportunity for you to do that. And on top of that, my grandma in Borneo used to take me around the garden and she you know, used to do things with plants. Plants aren't just, they're not dismissed as a quaint middle-class outdoor decoration, which is how they are often perceived in the West. They're functional objects. So, you know, you've got a headache, you use this one. Or if you, you fancy something for dinner, you take this one. You're wandering around the garden and it's hot, you know, two seconds of origami with a palm leaf and you suddenly have a hat. So I sort of used to use those as justifications. And then I thought, well, I'm from a Catholic family. I have like 3000 cousins. None of them are interested in plants. They all had a very similar upbringing to me. So I think it's, it's almost for me, it's the other way around. I think it's weird that people aren't interested in plants. They are the foundation of all life on earth. Almost all of our basic instinctive programming um, from our, our, literally our, our, our way we see the world, the fact that we can have red, green color differentiations, we can see stoplights, the fact that um, our eyes are on the front of our head so we have binocular vision, that's all down to millions of years, billions of years of co-evolution with plants. They've dictated who we are and they dictate who we will become. I kind of think it's like football. I feel my brother's fascinated with football and no one ever says to him, Paul, what made you first interested in football? I can't imagine what on earth people see with liking football. <laughs> um, so, so that's my answer to that. The funny thing is I'm really into football and I'm really into nature, which of course includes plants. I want to ask you this about the relationship between plants and the animal world. I'm not thinking for the moment about human beings. Mm -hmm. The reason I ask you this is because you said there were so many more animal scientists than there are botanists at the moment. Yes. But also when I'm when I'm in the botanical gardens in Cape Town, which is obviously because it's so far away, not a frequent experience, but I've been there a few times and I really love it. And I love it principally because of the bird life there. Okay. But when I'm watching the birds in those botanical gardens, 
you can't fail but be aware of the plants and the flowers for two reasons. One, they're sensational and they're beautiful and spectacular, but also because of the way in which the birds use those plants, use those flowers to live. And I'm thinking, for example, of the sunbird, the orange-breasted sunbird or the malachite sunbird, truly exquisitely beautiful birds in my view and they need these flowers in order to to survive so talk to us a little bit about your understanding through being a botanist of the relationship between plants and animals um well so animals could not exist without plants and really a significant proportion of the uh, evolutionary factors that have made animals what they are have just been to be in service to plants Plants have manipulated them into doing all kinds of fascinatingly weird things. Um, so the beak shape of all of these birds, their color vision, their color is all dictated by that. Um, we actually have quite a similar color vision to birds. So the plants that you like are, are because birds like them, because we, we are turned on by red colors. So you'll, you can see instantly with plants whether they're bird pollinated or not. Um, if they're sort of orange or bright red, you particularly see this in places like South Africa, Kirsten Bosch Botanic Gardens, you must mean. I've always wanted to go and I've never had the chance. But you also see in places like Australia and South America, lots of things with this fluorescent red coloration, um, particularly sunbird pollinated and hummingbird po pollinated. Um, we sort of, um, there's this thing called plant blindness, where if you show people a scene of the natural world and ask them to point out living things, they will instantly zone in on the tiniest animal hidden in the background of something right in the corner of a frame. But they won't mention the giant tree right in the center of the frame. Um, we sort of filter them out as a fuzzy green backdrop. And there's a good reason for that. Um, in our deep evolutionary past, animals are a threat in a way that plants aren't. So we're really fixated on things that move and things that come towards us and things that we can identify easily with. But plants are so much more fascinating in every way. Firstly, they're more important than animals. If all animals disappeared tomorrow, it would be a bad situation for humanity, but it wouldn't be the end of life on Earth. Whereas if all plants disappear, disappeared, we basically wouldn't be able to breathe in a very short space of time because they literally produce the air we breathe. The plants can't run away or hide from environmental threats like animals can, which means Firstly, they don't suffer these great extinction periods like animals do, but it means they also have to come up with all kinds of amazing evolutionary strategies. They have to use chemical weapons to defend themselves. So if you're trying to do something interesting to your biology, like for example, in medicine, if you, you're wanting to combat bacteria or fungi or viruses, plants are a great place to look because they can't run and hide from those threats. They've had to evolve over billions of years, sophisticated chemistry, which we're only just scratching the surface of, to defend themselves. And we can hijack their defenses and make them ours through the use of medicine, for example. So, I mean, it's such a big question, but plants aren't as immediately, obviously interesting as animals are. But once you tune into what they're doing, it is just mind-bogglingly fascinating. And I would say that we know less about the plants, even if they're rooted in front of us, than we do the animals, because we're different, we're, we can't really perceive them in the same way. 
plants work on a slightly different time scale to humans. So you can't see how they move and interact with each other, whereas you can quite easily see that with animals because their biology is similar to our own. And of course, it's not a competition, is it? So we can enjoy the animal kingdom. Oh, it's a competition. <laughs> oh, well, it's very interesting because I, I can see you massively flying the flag for plants and for botany. But to my mind, we can rejoice in all of them. But I, I understand why you're banging the drum for plants if you feel that there's not enough attention given to them. I tell you someone who did pay a lot of attention to plants and to their structure, and I've noticed one or two photographs on your Instagram page, which suggests to me that you're interested in the beauty of the plants, as well as, of course, their uses. But I'm thinking of Karl Blossfeld, a German photographer who was around at the end of the 19th century and first few decades of the 20th century as well. And he took some absolutely stunning images of how, not, not, cut, not interested in the colour, but the form, it seemed to me, the ones I'm thinking of anyway so plants are i can't believe like, i have not heard of this gentleman this no you so, must you must look usually, him up if they're if they're only seen in black and white photographs and a niche reference on nature i know that i feel like i know them personally this is one gentleman i don't yeah he's called carl blossfeld a really stunning photographer i studied him when i was at school anyway the beauty of plants is perhaps obvious but the, the beauty of their structure may be less so i'm curious to know james given that you <laughs> given that you candidly say it is a competition, how you compare the archetypal English garden, yeah. and, and the English are in, in our way famous for our gardens, or the British, and yeah, the but... uh, gardens in, I mean, let's say, tropical parts of the world, and you've been focusing oh. recently on, on the wonderful gardens in Singapore. How do you um, compare the English garden to gardens elsewhere in the world? Well, I think the firstly to answer that question, you do have to recognise that the English garden, and I definitely it's an English gardening school. I mean, it, it is something that is carried out throughout Britain, but it starts in England, and like many of its key proponents that really created it were English. Uh, it really comes from everywhere else. So the the cultural idea of amassing all of these ideas from other places is something, and the, the, the fascination with plants, that level of fascination with plants, is I think particularly British. However, um, most of the ideas have either come from the Middle East um, via places like Italy and France, or they've come from the Far East, places like China and Japan. I can't, I really struggle to think about a single contribution that is, you can say, is uniquely British that hasn't drawn on other influences other than maybe the lawn uh, or the hanging basket. Everything else. Uh, is really an imported idea that Brits have sort of taken on and made their own. So that's what I, one thing I would say. I would say that uh, it is interesting if we're talking about contemporary gardens, how different they are. I think that in the UK, I mean, gardens are like any other artwork. They reflect the culture that created them and they reflect the desires, the, the fears, uh, and the kind of the way we perceive the world to be. We talk about gardens being natural, and they're really not. They're highly stylized, theatrical interpretations of what we would like nature to be, what nature should be like. When people say they're natural, you know, they're, they're natural when you take out all the mud, uh, all the dead plants, all the pests, anything that's going to sting you <laughs> or bite you or pose any threat, uh, and, and ramping dramatically up the bits we do like, the flowers, the fruit, the kind of healthy plant matter, the clear water, um, stuff like that. And so when you look at cultures in, like, for example, Singapore, I think you really see a big cultural difference in the gardening. If you look at the UK, what you see is gardening as 
the ideal is a Victorian garden, very often. We use words like uh, heritage and local to mean automatically better. We have a kind of a sunlit idyll of what we would like that to be, that kind of chocolate boxy image of what gardens really are. And very often the, the chocolate box images that were painted, those cottages didn't look like that. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They had, you know, a family of, of 15 living in there with terrible sanitation and disease. They weren't pretty. They were prettified for a Victorian audience. And we've now carried on that fantasy of what gardens should be. On the other side of the world, in places like Singapore, they're also fantasies. But I think it's a very different idea. Rather than trying to capture an idealized past, they're very much about thinking that the future is the way forward. So it's often about completely disregarding things that have gone before and trying to create the biggest, boldest, bravest, most exciting, new, uh, innovative space age idea you possibly can. And in the UK, it seems to be really different. It's about rejecting all modernity, going back to an idealized past uh, and, and trying to make something that looks like our idea of what the 1880s was like, even if it isn't anything what the 1880s was like. And I think that there's something really fascinating as uh, as someone who's interested in gardens, as who's interested in design, about looking at those two things, because um, they're both beautiful and they're both fascinating, but they really tell you so much about the cultures that created them. Just looking in a garden, you can tell whether they think the past was a perfect place or the past was terrible and they, they're just looking towards the future. So talk to us briefly about the way in which gardens fit into a greener future. The, the role that gardens might play in a greater respect for our environment and for the challenges of climate change. Yeah, so one of the things I think that plants really have a problem with is they just look too nice. <laughs> um, it's a little bit, you know, some really beautiful people. They're always slightly worried that they're not smart. <laughs> I think plants are a little bit like that. They look so great that it's easy to dismiss them as just ornamental objects. We don't see them as important as microchips or oil um, because they don't look that great, but they fundamentally are more important to bo both of those things, not just to civilization and life on this planet, but to boring things like the economy. They're absolutely fundamental. So I think it's quite easy to dismiss them as a quaint, privileged um, ornamentation that's really completely frivolous. It's, you know, outdoor soft furnishings. Whereas in reality, what most gardeners know and what is being really backed up very well by rigorous scientific studies is that being around green space has a measurable impact on things like human health. It can reduce stress hormones. It can improve healing times in hospitals. It can improve exercise performance. And amazingly, you can burn more calories and the paradox is it somehow feels easier. There are really good evidence to link it to reduced um, antisocial behavior, which would happen, uh, which is, is a logical follow-on from, from having reduced stress levels. We even know that it can reduce crime rates. So as a, as a societal good, investment in green space is one that makes economic sense. It's not just the right thing to do because it looks nice and makes people happy and makes cities look pretty um, it's also the smart thing to do from those societal costs and also from the point of view of investment cities that look nice guess what they attract people to spend money in them and i think what's fascinating is 
the Victorians knew this. Victorian Brits really knew this very well. And, you know, right up until the, kind of the, the, the Second World War, there was a significant amount of investment in green space um, as it was considered not just pretty, but it was functional. And I think we've really forgotten that. I heard some... Um, an architect recently refer to landscaping, to refer to horticulture as developer's parsley, that kind of inconsequential garnish that you shove on the end that doesn't mean anything and doesn't involve any skill or talent. Um, and I thought, how wrong that is. Um, I mean, it's not just wrong because I disagree with it. It's wrong that just think about all the potential we're missing out on. Doing things like improving the health and well-being of entire populations and making things look pretty at the same time. If that was a medication, it would be too good to be true and people would be spending billions on it. But the fact that it's gardening, uh, I think people just dismiss it. James, give me some examples of cities or countries that you think get it, that really put gardens, green spaces to the fore. I would say that Victorian Brits absolutely did. I'd say that we have remnants of that culture, uh, but in a hobby sense, not in a, it's taken seriously by government sense at all. I mean, our politicians, have previously uh, said stuff like horticulture should be done as a civil punishment before because it's outdoor tidying up like litter picking it is taken seriously in other countries i would say that you know i'm biased because i grew up there but it definitely is globally recognized as a world leader singapore in terms of its green investment since independence of the 1960s its development has followed a garden city plan which has evolved it used to be garden city now it, then it was called uh, city in a garden to, to stress how much green they wanted and now they call it a city in nature because they wanted to reflect wild ecosystems rather than highly manicured nature but this idea was invented in britain um, lee kuan yu the first prime minister of singapore whose vision it was studied at cambridge and letchworth garden City's right around the corner that's where he got the idea from he just wanted to create that um, in a densely populated city where it had never been done before, but with palm trees. Uh, and, you know, 50 years on, when you wander around the city, it's actually quite difficult to tell sometimes whether something is CGI or whether it's real life, even when you're standing right in front of it. And these are all things that not only were invented in Britain, um, from a British perspective, many of the people doing these projects, many of the architects and landscape designers are British people who just don't have the opportunities to do that in places like London. Um, so it is it is fascinating to see. And as someone who has that dual heritage, it's sort of fascinating for me to be able to see the benefits of both of those sides. And, and to, uh, in the same way that you can tell the benefits, the downsides of both of those ways of thinking. When are you more at home as a botanist, and I'm talking about you personally, yeah. when you're experiencing flowers and plants in the wild, in their natural environment, or when you're in a garden? Oh, that's a really good question. I'd say the wild. I mean, I like both. Um, it's, a no, come on, it's no surprise to you that I like both. In the wild, things will surprise you that I think very rarely surprise me in a garden. The, the way that light falls on the side of a mountain is really difficult to replicate. In gardens, what we're trying to do is trying to mimic the way we would like that mountain to appear. Um, and everyone has their own style, and that, that's the wonderful thing. They're incredibly diverse, and you can learn so much about the person who's gardening just from seeing what they're doing. Um, uh, but definitely, I think my, my inspiration particularly always comes from trying to mimic nature in a highly stylized way. Um, but by that's, 
that's my guiding principle is trying to get the, those magical views that you see on a mountaintop. And I don't think that, you know, even the best gardens ever are quite able to achieve that. Do you have the same desire to see a, a species of flower or plant for the first time as I do when it comes to birds? And clearly you don't know how keen I am to see new species of birds or, bird, or species of birds. I'm getting a feel. Yeah, you're getting a feel. How excited you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm very excited to see a, a species of bird for the first time. I mean, not, not for the first time by human eye, but by me, yes. Matt Stadlin. Do you yes. get excited at the prospect of seeing... Of seeing? Would you travel to go and see a flower yes. or a plant Many for the times. first time? Many times. And I do get really excited. I, I'm The reason why I'm sort of pausing with my answer is I can understand, theoretically, why it's probably more exciting to some people to see birds, primarily because they move. So plants tend to stay in the same place. So you can usually get really up close with them and engage with them, and I would say a much more, not, not a more meaningful way, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. Uh, you can engage with them and really observe them. In, in you know, 360, you can get up and touch them, which you wouldn't be able to do that with birds that are flitting around. So I can imagine it's exciting because of the drama of it. If something appears, and then before you've even got your camp, your phone out to take a picture, it's disappeared again, and that, that kind of excitement of the moment. However, I don't, I think they're very different enjoyments. I mean, I'll stand around a tree taking photographs of it for a good half an hour and, and look like a complete weirdo. You know, I, I was once in, um, in a queue at Alton Towers, I think, when I was 11 on some holidays with some of my family. And I had a bunch of my cousins there. And they said, uh, the thing is, it's okay for you to wait in this queue. You know, the snaking queues with little borders between it. Because you can just look at the plants. I said, yeah, I'm having a great time. All these unusual weeds that I've never seen before that we don't have in Singapore. I wonder what genera that goes in. So I can see plants and cracks in the pavement and be fascinated by it. And very often get, you know, I'm in a car park on my, on crouched on all fours, taking a photograph of something in a crack in the pavement, getting very weird looks. Um, and it's, it's a completely different form of enjoyment, I guess. Um, they're both hunting, but one, you have the drama of, the, the fleetingness, but I enjoy being able to really get up close and see the plants in detail. Have you ever stumbled across a species that you've never seen before and just had the great thrill of that first moment and in an unexpected way? You weren't anticipating finding it. Yes, so definitely. And we actually have no idea how many plant species there are on Earth. We estimate around 400,000, but um, scientifically, a thousand species are recorded, roughly, give or take every single year uh, by Kew Gardens. We're the first people to, to document them scientifically. Um, but for example, in, in places like Ecuador, I used to live in Ecuador and high in the mountains, and I just go on a nature walk with some friends and someone who was local might say, oh, you're picking something from a tree, would you like to try one of these? And there's one single tree growing in a crevice on the side of a mountain. And they're this kind of a giant blueberry, you can recognize it's in the blueberry family, but quite difficult to get down to genera huge fruit ridiculously sweet easily commercial um it's completely wild most wild fruit are completely unpalatable without millennia of breeding to make them edible but this was you know massive uh, and delicious and um the gentleman there said this this valley used to be filled with them and i never see them anymore my family we call them this um and i wonder if that plant has even been recorded by science before there's a single tree left. I wonder if that was that was the single tree and if we would ever see it again. Certainly I did this really exhaustive search 
I'm the kind of person that then immediately the next day got onto a, a four hour bus ride to the city's herbarium with specimens and asked everyone about it, looked through all the samples. No one had heard of it. You can do that with plants. And, and on top of that, they're useful things. They're, it's a delicious fruit tree. And that that's like an anecdotal story, but that's happened to me loads of times in my career. What's Ecuador like as a place to enjoy the natural environment? I mean, I, I went there a long time ago and enjoyed being there. But for you as a botanist, what is that South American country like for the study of plants? Is it, I mean, we've had, of course, of the Galapagos Islands, which are yep. incredible for, for bird watchers. But for from a botanist's point of view, what's special about oh my Ecuador? Gosh, it's, it's insane. I mean... I thought you were going to say birding straight off the bat because it's really famous for that. Particularly, in, in uh, there's a whole industry dedicated to it with eco-lodges just for people who want to see birds. And even I, as kind of slightly animal-phobic, um, I used to have breakfast uh, in a small town that I lived in, you know, like maybe a couple of times a week, on this tiny little balcony with two tables, two kind of falling apart tables, and they had a, a, an empty bottle with a flower in the bars on, you know, on each table. And every time I went there and had my morning coffee, a hummingbird would appear from nowhere and drink from the fuchsia, the dahlia, whatever it was, the cut flower, in that, um, in that little vase of water. You know, an, a David Attenborough moment in the heart of the city and just for that one second, and it looked like it was completely iridescent, like it was a, like a flying Fabergé egg. So from a botany point of view, it's really similar to animals. It has this mega biodiversity because it has the Amazon on one side, the Galapagos on the other, and then between a massive mountain range. So I used to go on bus rides um, and it used to, this is early 2000s, it used to be one US dollar per hour on the bus. So you could travel the length and breadth of the country for, you know, $10. Um, and you'd fall asleep on, on the bus and you'd wake up and you'd be looking at desert sand dunes. And then you'd fall asleep for a few minutes again. And then you'd be in tropical rainforest. And then again, and you'd be in alpine prairie. The Because of the mountains and the microclimates that you get in these tiny pockets, there's this huge diversity of habitats, which has created just absolutely nuts flora from like something that looks like an edelweiss that goes up to three meters tall, covered in giant white fuzzy leaves that we now know, we didn't know at the time what the white fuzz was about. We now know it's UV protection. It's a woolly jacket that stops its, uh, its leaves from getting sunburned on the tops of the mountains. Uh, right down to ritual hallucinogens. It's not something I've ever been interested in, but academically, they're fascinating how they're prepared. I was in South America in 1999 doing bus journeys and I remember I think it was traveling through the across the Atacama desert and it was absolutely freezing getting on to the bus in the morning and then as the day developed it was stiflingly hot it was an extraordinary yes. contrast but I one thing I'm interested to know from you as well is just how impressed you are and how impressed we should be by the resilience of plants by the fact that you can have a, a plant or a flower growing in some of the most in hospitable conditions on earth obviously we think of the cactus but in deserts yeah. and, and and extreme mountain conditions so that reminds that reminds me of a, a story i have from latin america so one of the things that i always wanted to see and it might sound a bit pedestrian but i always wanted to see the wild ancestor of the potato um they're from south america where there are you know thousands of varieties 
Um, but the original ancestor of the potato was completely toxic. Like, it wasn't edible by humans at all. It would make you really sick. And the way it was domesticated, um, or the way it was first cultivated, is that ingenious local people figured out a way to get rid of the toxin. And what they would do is take advantage of that temperature differential. They'd grow the potatoes, they'd take them on llamas to the top of a mountain, where it gets really, really baking hot in the day, and then frozen every night. And what happens when they laid these potatoes out on some rocks is that they freeze at night, which would burst open their cells, releasing the toxic compound, and then really quickly dry in the heat of the day. They created the world's first form of freeze drying, which also detoxify these potatoes. In their dry form, they can last for years. And I was fascinated to see the process. Uh, and also, I wanted to eat. I wanted know what the world's first freeze-dried food that's still made today is the ancestor of the potato from thousands of years ago and the process still, is still active they taste a bit like chestnuts um so i really wanted to go see that um, and i've got completely distracted of oh resilience of plants right the fascinating thing about how resilient plants are is they don't have many of the faults that us animals do so for example they never lose their stem cells so you can chop up a plant into a million pieces and have a million plants. They can grow from all of those different pieces. They can lay buried, frozen, um, for literally tens of thousands of years and still be viable. They can clone themselves at will. Um, they can. They have all of these survival mechanisms that means that they've never had a, a huge extinction period in the way that animals do, and they can survive in the world's harshest environments. And for that reason, they're so diverse and so weirdly interesting i think they have a lot to teach us both in a practical sense uh you know if we could mimic the white fuzz that's on edelweiss plants we could keep satellites orbiting for longer because the reason why satellites have to come down is because their solar panels run out and their solar panels are affected by uv light so there are huge practical applications but even just from a human point of view you know growing plants at home has taught me so much about resilience about trying again if something fails, it will probably come back. It, it kind of teaches you simple life lessons. Earlier, you, when you were comparing animals and plants, you were saying that animals can be dangerous to humans, plants are not dangerous or something to that effect. But of course, some yeah. plants are dangerous, aren't they? You get poisonous plants and, and they can be dangerous to human beings. They could also be dangerous to flies. If, yes. if, 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 you, if a fly <laughs> happens across a fly, a fly catching plant. There was there was a, a a sort of a theory in cryptobotany, uh, which is an even more niche subject. Uh, it's the study of of plants that we think exist, or that there are reports that exist, but we're not sure if they actually do exist. There was an idea that there was a in Africa. Uh, this is the late nineteenth century that there was a carnivorous plant that affected humans. There was a really what people at the time thought were reliable reports from local people about that, and they they thought they were going to find it, which. Um, it turns out to never have existed. Uh, but it sounds ridiculous, but the Komodo dragon, for example, and the silverback gorilla were once things that people thought were myths and then they had been discovered. Um, oh my gosh, I then got off the subject again. How did we get off? What was the question? <laughs> no, just that plants can be dangerous, can't they? Yes, plants can. Okay, so plants can be dangerous, but not in the same way that animals can. So you don't have to have the fight or flight response, uh, which we have built into us, from other animals, including other people. So this that sort of threat is posed immediately and can run towards you and you have to react quickly. With plants, you have a little bit more warning and 
most of the really toxic plants, we have inbuilt sensors to, to, to defend ourselves against. So for example, um, when I say that plants have evolved to make us who we are, you might think that you don't like something that tastes bitter because you personally have that inbuilt decision that you don't like a bit of flavor. It's really billions of years of you evolving a palate that acts as a sophisticated chemical detector to, ward you, to stave you, you off from eating toxic foods. Most compounds produced by plants that are toxic are also incredibly bitter. Um, that's why our, our perception of bitterness changes as we get older. When you're a child, something like broccoli tastes objectively more bitter to you. You can perceive more bitterness in it than as an adult. And that's for two reasons. Firstly, it means if you're your parents are looking the other way and you shove something in your mouth, you instantly, instinctively spit it out. And also because as children, our body mass is smaller, it takes us less toxin to have negative consequences. As we get bigger, that becomes more diluted in our larger bodies. So we actually evolve, you know, the reason why children don't like vegetables is millions of years of plants trying to kill us. We've evolved to defend ourselves against them. Which isn't to say, of course, people should go around tasting plants because you might come across no, a, poison, were, a poisonous one. Exactly, and there are some that don't that don't involve bitterness. They they might involve like for for example, some of them have these tiny crystals, which are microscopic needles. So you bite into it, you don't have time to taste anything because you basically get a mouthful of needles. So that isn't to say people should do that, but what it is to say is once plants in the natural world, when we were wandering around the Serengeti not only did we have instinctive cues to help defend ourselves, we had a huge amount of traditional knowledge that was built into us over generations. So if you have this instinct that your grandma's food always tasted better, that you think that food was better and safer in the past, there's even this idea that I'm constantly seeing that World War II diets were healthier and we should go back to eating powdered eggs and spam. It's what millions of people believe. It's nuts. But they believe that because they have an inbuilt instinct around food and nostalgia. And that's because when you're wandering around the Serengeti, aside from something tasting bitter and you spitting it out, the other bias that you have that can save you is referring back to past knowledge that's handed down over generations as something that's preferable over tasting new things. People will not taste something new in those situations if they have this bias that's telling them to eat things that they know and love. That's it's a defense mechanism. Before I ask my next question, I should just say that, of course, not all children don't like their vegetables, do they, James? I mean, I was quite fond of my vegetables when I was growing I up. I was as well, generally. Just the <laughs> really better things not. But gen yeah, obviously, well brought up children. Tell me about American gardens, because I know very little about them. Do you know about them? So I have seen some American gardens in reality. I haven't traveled extensively. The good thing to a degree about American gardens is I think they are more innovative than UK gardens particularly in areas where climate permits. So if you go to places like San Francisco and LA, they're doing some mind-bogglingly amazing things. Um, I think if you go to the East Coast, there still is a sort of an idea that a good garden is a British garden, which is definitely an idea that I grew up with even in Singapore. In the tropics, people were desperately trying to recreate floral clocks, rose gardens where roses don't bloom, you know, topiary gardens. Thank goodness, places like Singapore have moved on. 
Uh, I'm under the impression from the, what I've seen in media and from what I've seen from the limited number of ones that I've visited that, you know, temperate East Coast of America is not that exciting. But once you start going down to Florida uh, and L.A., San Francisco, there's some absolute fascinating gardens that I really want to see. Does being a botanist mean you're also interested in trees? Because and, and, uh, does the study of trees, does botany encompass the study of trees? Because you talked about earlier about you know, photographing a tree, I think, from different angles, yes. spending time with it. Are trees part of botany? And if so, are you, are you a lover of trees? Absolutely. So trees are very much part of botany. Botany is the study of all plants. Uh, in the same way, there's no such thing as a fish. There's sort of no such thing as a tree. W trees are not like a technically a taxonomic group. They're not genetically related to each other. Anything that grows above a certain height, completely unrelated, we just call them trees. So there are huge diversity in that. Um, however, it is a specialization in, in botany, and it's not one of mine. It's way too tricky and fascinating to learn about. Um, but some of my favorite plants are trees, the rain trees of South America that are popular throughout Southeast Asia. Um, they're these huge canopy shaped, umbrella shaped trees that were introduced in colonial times to, to Southeast Asia. And they, they're called rain trees because they close their leaves up when it rains. And what that means is all of this rain hits the boughs of their branches. So native ferns and orchids that have a limited ability to grow to native trees because they, they don't get the water, grow on these umbrella-shaped trees that are introduced to more than any other. So ironically, this what we like, we often think of that, you know, non-natives equals bad in, in horticulture and botany. This is the exact opposite. They provide habitat, which local trees are not very good at. So if you want to see these incredible gardens lifted into the sky that have spontaneously generated from ferns and orchids sitting on another plant, Rain trees in Southeast Asia are the place to see it. You had to choose, would it be plants without flowers or plants with flowers? In a, in a, put, put in simple language, do you, do, you yes. prefer, do you prefer sort of green plants or flowers? Green plants, very easy answer. I, flowers are beautiful. Flowers in nature are beautiful. I think very often what people do to flowers is, you know, there's, there's a hashtag I saw on Twitter, which I thought was amazing, crimes against horticulture. You know, you have these plants that look completely different, are wild and weird and exotic from all over the world. And once they're run through the breeding mill, they do the same things. They cause them to be double. What that means is, so instead of having a single ring of petals, they just have as many petals as possible. So like a rose in many and as bright colors as possible and the biggest size. So you have all of these incredibly diverse plants that all end up looking like roses. And to avoid that, I just avoid flowers altogether. Tell us a really cool fact. And I mean, you've sprinkled this interview with fascinating things about plants, but tell us a, a really cool fact about plants that kind of just m still makes you go, wow. Oh my gosh. There are so, well, I alluded to it earlier. The fact, the very way we see the world is dictated by plants. Very few animals can see, have red, green color vision that we have. And that's created usually when like the, the idea is that it's that there are two main theories, but I think the more convincing one is it allows us to pick a red against a green background quickly. And if you, for example, go out strawberry picking with a bunch of people who are colorblind, they come back after hours with very little because they're reliant entirely on shape. People who have got good color vision, which is most people, thanks to evolution, can go in and an incredibly short amount of time instantly pick up on these and gather lots of calories. But that isn't just a physical attribute. Because it's become a mental one, 
we become weirdly fixated with red. People often say, isn't it a sign of danger? No, we paint things that are dangerous red to make them stand out. So red stop signs, but in the same way, if you want a, a bus to stand out, you paint it red. If you want uh, traffic lights to come out, you paint them red. Red cocktail dresses, red sports cars, red light districts, it all comes down to humans gathering fruit. Penultimate question, your absolute favorite plant on the planet. Oh no, this is, I don't have children, but it's like asking me to pick. I am gonna say the one that I'm tending to, I was tending to about five minutes before I got here. I've got um, one of the world's smallest varieties of water lily. It's not the world's smallest water lily species, which is uh, critically endangered, extinct in the wild, and it would be illegal for me to have, just to clarify. I have a slightly bigger one, which was, uh, which was bred in captivity, um, but it's in a fruit bowl in, on, on my dining room table, uh, sort of a punch bowl size, probably about 35 centimeters across. Uh, and inside it lives this tiny water lily. And even in February, in the middle of the night when it's raining down outside, I can just look at it and pretend I'm in eternal summer. Final question, and it is fascinating listening to someone talk with the passion that you talk about plants and to talk about them almost as though they're animals, this idea of being bred in captivity is it's in, intoxicating to listen to. Final question, tell us whether you have sort of some secret skills, some special skills that we should know about. Give us a bit more of an insight into you, James. You don't <laughs> like you don't like football. Tell us something I, outside of plants that you're. I think it's outside really of plants. You think I have interests outside of plants? Having <laughs> spoken to me for the last hour. Um. Oh, oh gosh. Um. All, I am very one-track minded. I'm afraid to say. Uh. So all the things that I like doing, I I like cooking and I like food. Primarily, I don't, really don't eat much meat. And I'm not very interested in it. Primarily because I'm fascinated about plant material. I'm the kind of person that if a vegetable is unpronounceable on a menu, I'm the first person to Google up where it came from, how it was used, what its botany is. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in food and growing food. Um, what else? Travel. But I mean, that's mainly to see plants, to be very honest. I wish I had some kind of, uh, I don't know, I was a grandmaster at chess hidden up my sleeve, but I really don't. I, w I want to just quickly alert people to the fact that we can find you on Instagram. We can find you on Twitter. You're, currently doing a series aren't you on gardens is it specifically in singapore on instagram or is it in a, a diversity of countries oh that's a very good question so i've just finished what i'm calling season one so it's a series of really really short documentaries they just fit onto instagram reels so they're 90 seconds i've made um eight of them on singapore and different amazing urban green and product projects i'd make them all over the world uh i just need to have find someone that wants to give me the filming permission to go and maybe wants to sponsor one or two of them. But um, I would absolutely make them everywhere in the world. It just happens to be that's where I was. Uh, and that's where I could, you know, just call up a company and be like, hi, can we film on the roof of your hotel tomorrow? Yeah, that's fine. I will go. If, if I could get somewhere else to agree to that, I'd do it there. James Wong, it's been a real pleasure having you on 20 Questions with. Thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. You're very welcome. <laughs>